2: Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark, and this week our Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield is talking to Barbara Speed about how we all started tracking our lives from steps to spending. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospects Art and Books editor Samir Rahim and our political correspondent Alex Dean to discuss the latest culture and politics. Alex, uh, it's at the core of all. All these debates that have now reached the electric point, this business of the Northern Ireland backstop. Still, most people don't know what it is, but they know they don't like it.
3: That's
0: right. Almost no one seems to know what the Northern Ireland backstop is, but everyone from every side seems to dislike it. The Labour Party says they don't like it. Um, The hard Brexiteers certainly don't like it. The DUP doesn't like it. But a little bird tells me that you do. My position on the backstop is that it's suboptimal, but if we're going to leave, then we need something that does the same job. Um, So actually, if you know, I kind of uh, am a deep down and kind of wish we were staying. And uh, if we're not going to stay, then I'd quite like us to leave in a very soft way. But if we're going to leave in a significant way, I think the backstop is uh, necessary. And I'm glad it's there.
2: And just tell us very briefly uh, what it does again.
0: So it's basically an insurance policy uh, designed to guarantee no hard border on the island of Ireland. The idea and the hope uh, for certainly Britain and possibly the European Union, is that fancy technological solutions uh, will come along and kind of save the day and uh, we can diverge from Europe. But if they don't and we need our insurance policy, what does the insurance policy do? It's about alignment of rules. So the backstop would kick in uh, and it would draw a border down the Irish Sea in order to prevent there being a border drawn on the island of Ireland, so it's essentially kind of a pre- preservation of uh, the you know the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, the open border on Ireland, basically.
2: I mean, it's uh, interesting, isn't it, Samir? How language with these things is often important. Um, backstop, I understand, is a term from baseball. I thought I
4: thought it was a rounder's term personally, but maybe it is baseball as well. I'm not. I'm not sure. I wonder whether we called it, if we called it the wicket keeper. Maybe that would make it more amenable to uh, to Brexiteers, but um, but what but what's the actual problem with Northern Ireland diverging from the rest of the United Kingdom in terms of rules and regulations? Because it already has different regulations on things like abortion and grammar schools.
0: I agree with you. I think that this would just be more divergence, but we've already got some. Uh, initially, it was going to be customs and regulation checks down the. Irish Sea, uh, which basically, you know, it sounds very complicated, but it's basically checks on goods kind of going back and forth, and and that does seem like it's stepping into a new new territory more more so than what we've got now. What one thing I'd remember in all of this though is that Britain's behaviour over the past months and even years has, if anything, just confirmed the need for the backstop. With the whole reason it's there is because if we can't be trusted, you know, it's it's an insurance policy. It's basically a fallback. Um, you were using the rounders kind of cricket. Analogy, it's that kind of net or cat person catching the ball, isn't it? It's I was probably pro backstop anyway, but if anything, we've been such an unreliable negotiating partner trying to go back on promises that we've made. I think actually, the backstop we've proven why it exists over the course of our arguing against. So, we know it. that an
2: awful lot of people in parliament don't like it, like, uh... Dozens and dozens of Conservative MPs don't like it. And also the Democratic Unionists don't like it. Do we know anything about whether people in Northern Ireland itself, the place most affected, what they think of it?
0: Yeah, so it's actually quite popular in <laughs> in Northern Ireland, which is the funny thing about all this. Um, it's it's also popular with Northern Irish businesses. And actually, I think it could end up being quite good if the backstop comes into effect. It could be good for the Northern Irish economy uh, if <laughs> Northern Ireland ends up closely aligned with Europe. Europe is our most lucrative market.
2: Maybe we should turn it into a front stop. But um, Samir, you're going to tell us about what's piling up by the side of your bed, I think.
4: Spy by Marie Kondo in her new Netflix show, which talks about how we should all be incredibly tidy and sort out our lives. I think her rule is that no more than 30 books in the house, um, and they all have to spark joy individually. Well, Some of us didn't quite live up to that standard and I was just wondering about what people have on their bedside tables and what they're actually reading. A few people have been tweeting about what they've been reading as well. I try and keep work reading completely separate from bedside table reading. So, you know, the living room has piles of stuff that I need to get through for work or anything to do with politics or the day job uh, and new novels and all the rest of it. But by my bedside table I've got the long-term reading projects that I've always wanted to sort of aspire to do and sort of partly do but never quite get around to. I've just I've got a biography or the first volume of a biography of Martin Luther King by Taylor Branch, which is a magnificent book. It's really engrossing and fascinating. It's called Parting the Waters. Unfortunately, I never feel like I really want to get back into it because I've read, been reading it for about 18 months. By the time I get back to it, I've forgotten about who exactly all these characters are. And I have to remind myself of, you know, which particular civil rights person here or the all the rest of it. I developed a project two or three years ago now to read all of Pepys 's diary, based actually on Anna Blundy's piece that she did for us at Prospect. Um, and I was talking with her and she was saying, yes, you know, there's this great 10 volume edition Uh, And each volume is like a penny or two on Amazon, and you can get it quite cheaply. So my aim was to read a volume uh, per month and get it done in about a year. Um, The current rate I've got at the moment is about one volume per year, not per month. So it'll take me about 10 years to get through the whole thing. Um, it is quite good bedtime reading, though, Peeps, because um, because it's not a sort of narrative flow. It's just someone's everyday life. You can pick it up quite easily. And also he's always very sort of um, careful to note exactly what he's completed in during his day and what business he's done with the Navy and who he's met and what he's eaten and, and all the rest of it. So it's quite sort of satisfying. You feel you're almost sort of ticking off your own register of work um, as you're reading it and going through it.
2: <laughs> well, I've got... Um Sadly, I do have a a couple of um, workbooks kicking around about social mobility, which I was talking to you about doing a piece on, Samir.
4: That's very good to hear. I always like to see reviewers uh, using every moment of their time to get through the book.
2: But then I I do think for bedtime reading, it's very good to have things with short sections so that you can read as much or as little as you like and it doesn't play with your sleep. So um, I've got, at the moment, um, the book about the Beatles the revolution in the head which I picked up at the weekend which is really nice because you've got a page uh uh, it's very well written and and well well informed book but you've got a page per song roughly sometimes they're five pages if it's hey Jude or something and if it's some her majesty it might be three sentences so it's sort of but it's, it's very easy to dip into and dip out of also um Simon Jenkins's history of Europe where you've got these very short chapters on um, like huge chapters of European history covered in seven pages or something like the First World War and I quite like that kind of um, concision um, and um, also one that I know you've um, enjoyed Ferdinand Mount's English voices they're sort of
4: oh yeah yeah uh, short stories are also really good I've just got Alice Munro's short stories leading on from Ben Markwitz's piece when he uh, wrote about how to write a uh, great fiction and it's a big gap in my knowledge that i've not read anything by her so haven't opened it yet but it's there it's aspiration
0: <laughs> not at all uh i've got a, book, a biography of alan greenspan a former chairman or president or whatever of the federal reserve bank um by sebastian Mallaby, and how global currencies work by barry eichengreen it's a weird thing because um I'm, well i'm quite good at finishing books that i start um, it's quite rare that I'll get halfway through a book and like not finish it. But I'm very bad at... I mean, I've got a huge stack of books that I've just never started and maybe never will. And it's a weird thing because you feel guilty. <laughs> it's why you even bother having them there if you're not going to read them.
4: My, my sort of easier reads or things that really will send me to sleep, I tend to do by audiobook now. So um, I quite like the comfort reading of reading uh, John Le Carre's Smiley books because I know them so well. And having the audiobook, the Michael Jason. Uh, does is uh, really enjoyable um, also I have to admit I do really like the Alan Partridge books as well and often will listen to 10 or 15 minutes before bed of Steve Coogan does the reading of, of Nomad or uh, I Partridge we need to talk about Alan
2: so it's quite good to know that um, Samir as well as making the transition from the magazine to the podcast is also making the transition from books to audio books but let's leave all of that there for now And press on to the main event. This week we're talking to Barbara Speed about how tech allows us to track our lives. Is it good for us or is it going to drive us mad?
3: Barbara Speed, hello.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: Thanks very much for coming in today. Um, you've got your phone in front of you because you're going to take me through some of your tracking apps. Um, first of all, how many different ones do you have on your phone?
1: So I was just looking now. So obviously I have the ones that Apple just give you. I've got the health app and then the new Screen Time app, which texts you on a Sunday and says you've been looking at phone too much. And then on top of that, I've got... Uh, I've got the Nike Run Club, which I use to track my running. I've got my Fitness Power, which I have used to track food in the past, although I'm not using that at the moment. I've got DrinkAware, which is an alcohol app where I enter my drinking every day.
3: Did you do that over Christmas as well? I did, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> have a look at that data in a minute. I've got, what else do I have here? There's a heart rate app, which I think the new update on Apple allows you to check your pulse through your finger yeah I've been that's more of a kind of I haven't been able to find anything very interesting in how it's like developed over time but it is quite interesting to try it at different times if you think you're feeling stressed and then (laughs) yeah confirm it using the data Uh, and what else have I got here Uh, a couple of other running apps and also I got Monzo and Revolut which are both cards that let you track your spending
3: so that's a way that you can yeah you can track what you're spending what you're saving how much money yeah, you've got left
1: exactly yeah and though i actually tend to use a google sheet which is just a spreadsheet for my spending now because i find that a bit easier to use so i've got that on my phone as well so those are the main ones
3: and did you did you do this before the apps existed were you always someone that tried to track what you were what you were doing
1: probably not actually i've never kept a diary or a journal or anything like that i think i'm quite lazy but i like the feeling of having that data. So I think the rise of phones sort of allowed me to do that in a way that I hadn't before. And I think probably, say with money, I'm probably always someone who's not been that on it. I find it quite hard in my head to understand how much I've been spending. So the idea of someone sort of doing it for me was really appealing. Um, which is why I was kind of the, cur- the perfect customer for um, these kind of new app-based banks, which I guess w- is what you'd call them. Uh, so I think for me, the technology has enabled me to do it in a way that I never would have done otherwise. And
3: why do you... Actually, that question is just a one-word question. Why? Why are you tracking yourself? So not quite religiously, but but in a way that you know a lot of people simply don't.
1: Having that question was was kind of why I wanted to do this piece, really, because I don't think I really understood myself I think there's two elements, two sort of sides to it. And that's where you could potentially call them the kind of positive and negative sides. That on one side, there's the kind of just interesting, almost fun aspect, which is brought along with the technology that we can kind of see ourselves and look at ourselves and measure ourselves in ways that we couldn't before. The technology maybe could help you understand your own behavior that you it gives you kind of data that's other than just how you see yourself, if that makes sense, so what's quite interesting is that, say, looking at alcohol data, you might think, "Oh, I've been drinking a lot this week, but when you actually look at it, you haven't because say you've been out twice but you haven't drunk the other five nights, what you realize is that actually having a single glass of night wine every night adds up more, so it's quite appealing this idea that you could have kind of empirical data rather than just relying on the kind of fuzzy ways And is that, that partly because yourself. you
3: think. That we're not so good at remembering what we've done,
1: exactly, and we're very coloured by our own kind of value judgments, so you kind of think i've been awful, I've done this and that and the other, but it's it's nice to have like another side <laughs> another way of looking at it, which which it kind of coming on to my second point can be negative in itself that the second way that tracking I guess is used is as an encouragement to do things differently or to keep control in a way of your drinking or your spending or your eating and especially perhaps with the third one of those that can become quite destructive. So I know that apps often form a part of kind of eating disorder culture um, that this idea you can kind of control yourself or punish yourself using data is kind of comes alongside that sort of more fun explorative aspect. So I guess with my own tracking I've tried to avoid things that run the risk of running of going into that area that although i do track my drinking i'm not like i'm not doing dry january for example i kind of try to stay within specific limits but i don't kind of necessarily beat myself up about it i just find it interesting to see how it changes over time
3: and has any of this tracking actually changed your behavior in any way whatsoever do you find your spending less or spending more or drinking less or drinking more or going for longer runs or not running quite as much as you wanted to in the past
1: yeah I think it does up to a point I think what's interesting is that the thing that changes my behaviour is often a conclusion I've been able to draw from looking at the data so the example I gave about drinking every evening as opposed to drinking kind of once in a while but having a bit more it's been quite eye-opening that I sometimes often the drink I won't bother having is the one drink at an event or at home or something because I think actually this isn't worth it having one day where I'm not drinking is probably more valuable here than just like having a single glass of wine so steps is a quite a good example of something where it does sort of encourage you to change your behavior slightly because there's a, kind of on pedometers and also on the apple app the encouraged goal is this 10,000 steps which we could probably talk a bit more about later oh, yeah. but it's <laughs> this this slightly arbitrary number that if you reach that every day or you reach that average then you've sort of done your bit which is kind of a made up idea but I definitely find myself kind of trying to reach that goal but with spending for example I don't particularly look at my spending and think oh god I need to stop spending anything this week because I spent this I mean I would if I was actually running out of my money but but from that what's interesting is I sort of I divide it into categories and what I notice is that the spending that kind of annoyed me and that I wish I wasn't doing was on things like coffee shops and convenience food shops that I thought my big spending would be on like going out for dinner with my friends but actually that didn't add up to as much as i thought and i thought well actually that's something i do want to be doing whereas pointlessly buying stuff in prep it's probably made me do a bit less of that because i've seen how it adds up
3: if you see you're spending yeah 10, it, 15 like a week on I've coffees been. then exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah do you think this is a um a generational thing or a cultural thing amongst people more in their 20s and 30s that are more possibly also because they're more tech literate but more willing to To do this sort of tracking?
1: I think it does span the generations and obviously the rise of the technology means that anybody can do it and especially among people who do it in a really wide ranging way. I think those people probably are of all ages. I think among sort of millennials I guess you'd call them, there's a connection between a culture of sort of you could call it wellness but I think young people just have this idea that you can do little things all the time to kind of make yourself better there's this sort of self-improvement culture which maybe comes from the fact that you can't necessarily have bigger goals like maybe the fact you can't necessarily buy a house but you could spend your money a bit better in different ways or
3: this is a way that you can have control over one aspect of your life
1: exactly yeah and I think that's very appealing to younger people who and again they might their career goals might not be as clear, they might be changing jobs, they might be in the gig economy. But with your phone, you kind of have this single tool, which lets you sort of look at your life and maybe apps that let you supposedly improve your life. And I think that's quite appealing to younger people in particular.
3: Despite what we're saying about apps and how this is a sort of a new fad, in a sense, it's not, is it? Because, you know, one of the most interesting things I found in your piece was the story of where 10,000 steps came from that that yeah, you know, lots of people, even those that don't have pedometers or or use phones in this way, will have heard of as a way of like oh well, if you do your ten thousand steps every day, then you're you're keeping healthy in some way. Um, but it's an entirely made up number, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was actually a public health campaign in Japan, um, which was encouraging people to get healthier and to do more outside exercise. And basically, there was a conversation where they were putting these posters together and they were thinking, right, what's a way that we can encourage people to get out more? And they basically did a study that showed that the average Japanese person did around 5,000 steps a day. And so they just decided to double it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's still this metric that we're using. And Public Health England, I think, frequently says this is completely made up. This doesn't necessarily mean that much. Obviously, walking more is good for you. I think probably Public Health England would say doing other types of exercises is probably quite helpful. Uh, But still, this kind of myth Remains that this 10,000 steps is the golden number. Talk to
3: me a bit about uh, the quantified self movement. This is a, a group of people that take all this tracking in a in a slightly different direction, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So the yeah. quantified self movement um, was sort of co-founded by a former editor at Wired, and it's a movement of people who basically do this tracking stuff, but usually it's not through an app that's available in the app store. Like these are people who are designing ways to track aspects usually of their body but also just of their lives um, in a very almost kind of scientific way and then they have meetups which are organized over the internet which happen all over the world so it's called a movement but I wouldn't say there's an, there's not a kind of I know they have a conference every year but there's not a single aim or there's not a, so it's not a political movement of any kind um, so I spoke to someone who runs meetups in London and she called it personal data on steroids so it's these people who are interested in this data but in like 10 times The way that say probably even i would be Uh, so people track their urine they like weigh themselves before (laughs) going to the toilet and afterwards people track their kind of calcium intake but sometimes someone pops up who's designing like a new technology or a new app which is for tracking and they're like desperate to get these people as their first users or their sort of beta testers because these people are kind of at the forefront of tracking
3: do you find just going back to yourself and the way you use these things do you find it enjoyable to to track so many things that you're doing or does it feel like a bit of a chore?
1: I think I do find it enjoyable, yeah. Obviously, like anything else, it can kind of veer in one or the other direction. I know that basically I, with my money, I go back every, once a week and I look through my payments and then I put it into a spreadsheet and I know that if I don't do it, I do get this weird kind of anxious feeling where I do not know where I stand and I guess that's not that good that obviously... Especially as I don't really use the data to do anything, I shouldn't be feeling this compulsion to track it. But I, there obviously, I do in some way like this feeling that I've kind of tracked everything. And I know with drinking, I've heard this from other people as well. I don't think I'm a particularly problem drinker, but there is this way in which if you've had, say, over Christmas and say over December, say you've gone out four nights in a row or whatever, I get this feeling that if I've tracked it, then that's kind of. It's almost like confession or something <laughs> that you're like, well, I've accounted for that. I've owned up this to it. This is okay. I, yeah, I've, I've it's told mine, the it's in app that app. I've done this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it probably doesn't, because it comes up with all kinds of like, alerts. <laughs> thinks that you're having more than three drinks. When you
3: add another gin and tonic, you're like, oh, exactly. right, I've gone over the lid. Um
1: But there must be a way in which the fact I know I'm going to have to write it down at some point it, for, for a start, it means I count it in my head. I don't know that most people, when they're drinking, would actually remember exactly what they've had. Yeah,
3: I was going to ask you about that. Is it so you, you essentially you count as you go along? Yeah, okay, exactly.
1: This. Yeah, And it, I don't know that it, would, it wouldn't it would usually affect how much I'm drinking, but I guess there is a point at which you're like, I can't be writing eight <laughs> glasses of wine. I mean, come on. Uh, so it must have a slightly sort of chilling effect there. But I think I just pretty passively write it down at the end and then feel like I've accounted for, <laughs> for what I've done
3: <laughs> um, there's a part in your piece where you talk about the dangers of doing something purely so that it is recorded and this fear that some people might have that well if you go on a walk without your app have you really gone on a walk? Does it count?
1: Yeah, I spoke to a psychologist who was really interesting and interesting in talking about children and how children are motivated to do things. And that when you have a kid, you've got these two options. You can say, do your homework because it'll be good for you. And it is a good thing to do in and of itself or do your do your homework and you can have a Mars bar at the end. And that the second option actually has quite a damaging psychological impact because it removes any kind of reward system or motivation in doing the act itself that you don't actually teach someone to do their homework all you teach them is that they get rewards for doing stuff and we can there's a danger of doing that to yourself with this kind of thing so say like with a drinking app one i have allows you to press a big button to say no drink day which is has i definitely think a reward effect on you that you feel kind of like yes i've done a good thing here um but it doesn't really make you think well have i enjoyed not drinking how has it made me feel not drinking made me feel much better the next day i was less tired that it doesn't involve those kind of deeper parts of your brain
3: do you worry at all about where all this data goes because these apps are i guess on the whole free to use yeah
1: Yes, and you have to wonder sort of why. Uh, Yeah. So I know that MyFitnessPal, which is a big sort of eating tracking app that was sold for hundreds of millions of pounds quite recently. That has a massive, massive database of what, I know it's very big in America, so what huge proportion of the American population is eating. Um, Obviously there's scope for serving those people adverts. So I think there is a lot to worry about in where the data is going. I think you have to think for yourself, probably on an individual basis about this. So I think, well, my drinking data is out there. That app is actually run by DrinkAware in conjunction with the government. So I'm probably not hugely bothered. Although I guess if a government came in, he wanted to try and round up drinkers and I don't know. But um, I think you kind of have to think about it on a case by case basis. And also obviously I am getting something from it. So there's an exchange there. So I'm weighing up, well, how much does it matter? I guess, especially with money, I kind of quite like that I just do that myself on a spreadsheet that I control, obviously Google also controls it so that's worth thinking about too perhaps older people who aren't so aware of privacy concerns it's something that is worth emphasizing to people that say companies like fitbit actually know often where you are a lot of the time that's quite concerning and most phones now track your location without asking you all those things are definitely a problem and and i guess that's just something that will need to be kind of worked out going forward that companies want to track us we kind of want to track ourselves to what What's the balance there?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it's something that obviously we're, you know, we're all thinking about more we'll talk about more. It's, you know, Facebook was, well, Facebook's a really interesting example because, you know, for 10 years, it's been quite open about how much data it has on us. But this was stuff we were willingly giving this company, knowing that, this was a free service, so they must be getting something out of this.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And there's a thing, especially with Facebook, what scares people is that there's an awful lot of your data in one place there. That with my apps, I, th- I think, well, at least I have different ones, but then there's actually... Until they get bought by Facebook. Exactly. There's also the danger that they'll all be bought by the same by the same place. And there's kind of an interesting angle as well when you think about other countries which have even less regulation on privacy than we do. So in China, there was a company, I just saw this last month, there was a company that started fining employees if they didn't walk at least 180,000 steps a month, which is quite a dark development. There are companies in the UK and the US that have started rewarding employees for walking, which in one way is nice, another way could be seen as this odd way in which this company is starting to really invade In people's lives and it's obviously benefits the company for employees to be healthier because they don't take sick days but there's something in there that feels a little bit worrying and then obviously this china example is quite disturbing basically
3: yeah i think it's just one of those areas that we're just going to have to think about more over the coming years um barbara speed thank you very much indeed
1: thank you for having me cheers
2: and that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to me, Tom Clark, and Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield with guest Barbara Speed. And thanks also to Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from earlier in the podcast here in the heart of Westminster. Stephanie Boland was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.